Genesis chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, um, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last uh, Sunday night in Genesis chapter 9. And so if you want to make your way there, I know it's a long ways, but it's just the uh, um, first book of the Bible. You can find your way there to, to uh, Genesis chapter 9. Uh, Edmund Burke, who is a author from many generations ago, made this statement. He said, those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. Now it's been said different ways by different people at different times. Uh, Winston Churchill in a 1948 speech to the House of Commons um, said something similar to that. George uh, Santayani, who is an American philosopher, he kind of said it in a different way. He said, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now his version, George Santayani's version, actually is on a sign that is hung above the entrance as you are going to the Dachau concentration camp there in Germany. They have now converted the Dachau concentration camp to a museum. And so as these people, even today, as they are heading into the Dachau concentration camp, that that quote is written above the entrance. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, sometimes the quotes may vary slightly, but the principle is still the same. The principle that I mentioned out of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and it says this, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. So last week we were talking about the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God to Noah and his family, and you would think that after Noah and his family got off of the ark, they were delivered from the wrath of the flood, you would think that they would stay on the straight and narrow forever. I mean, wouldn't you think that if you were on the boat, you were part of the ark, you saw the destruction, you saw the wrath of God, you saw the justice of God, you saw all these things that God had done, you would think that there would be a certain amount of attitude that we're not going to do that again. So, they get off of the ark, you see the faithfulness of God to Noah and his family. As soon as they get off the ark, God gives them dominion there in chapter 9 and verse 3. He gives them dominion over every moving thing that lives shall be for food for you as I gave you the green plants I give you everything and then in starting in verse 8 of chapter 9 all the way down through verse 17 God gives them this covenant and says this is my covenant for you this is what I'm going to do for you this is what I'm promising you this is how I'm going to provide for you take care of you all of these things and in light of all that you would think that rebellion would be over You would think that man would learn and so subsequent generations would know after they saw the power of God, after they saw the justice of God, after they saw the mercies of God, you would think that reverence and fear would mark their lives. The problem is, is you get out of Genesis and you get through the rest of the Bible, even if you get into here in 2021, we are continually echoing the words of God. If you think back up to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, when God makes his covenant with Noah, he says this, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God acknowledges right there in Genesis chapter 8 that the attitude, the heart of man is evil. So it leads me to this next foundational truth that I want us to consider. As we've been looking at some of these foundational truths that really kind of form the foundation of what we believe, why we believe, and the things that gird us through the rest of our Bibles, we have to think about the depravity of man. 
the depravity of man. We talked about it last Sunday night after the service, talking about the uh, a lot of the people in the Reformed community, they talk about the total depravity of man. This idea that man is depraved. There is nothing of man that is of worth, that earns his salvation, that deserves his salvation. There is nothing of man that merits God's saving grace apart from the love of God in our lives. And so one of the foundational truths has to do with the depravity of man. You may say, why is that something that you would consider to be a foundational truth? Because we're living in a day and age where everybody thinks that they're a pretty good person. We start to talk about people. Well, do you know about that Eli? Well, yeah, you know that Eli, he's a pretty good guy. Well, it doesn't matter if you're good or you're not good. (laughs) All that matters is, is are you lost or are you saved? I mean, this idea that we start to evaluate people on their morality, or we start to evaluate people on their last name, or we start evaluating people on their works and their deeds in a society, doesn't show us the merit of a person. I remember back whenever um, President past President Trump was running for office and there were preachers that were lined up to support him. And one of the prominent ones was Dr. Robert Jeffers, pastor of First Baptist Church Dallas. And I remember seeing him saying, hey, I believe in this man. I believe in this man's heart and I support this man. He is a good man. And I thought, you know what, Mr. Jeffers, it doesn't matter if he's a good man or not. There's a lot of good people that go to hell. And we have this misconception that, well, a good person is sufficient for something and good people die and go to hell all the time. So we see, we're going to see, hopefully you're going to see with me, this picture of the depravity of man on full display. Because it's important for us to know when we think about the faithfulness of God, when we think about the judgment of God, when we think about the redemption of God, it's all necessitated because of the depravity of man and the actions of man. But to back up, we're going to go back up there to Genesis 9 and verse 1 and we're going to pick up the story this story of this narrative if you will about the history of man we're going to go back to what God started in Genesis 9 and verse 1 it tells us and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth you skip down to verse 7 and God's still speaking and he says and you be fruitful and multiply increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it so as soon as Noah and his three sons, their wives, they get off the ark. The first thing that God tells them is go forth and fill the earth. God had a plan. His plan was to populate the earth. You go back to Genesis 1.27, which Cale read a couple of Sundays ago. It talks about blessed is the man that multiplies, that, that fills the earth. So God had a plan. God had a plan for man that he was going to go forth and he was going to fill the earth. This is a little bit of a side note, but I find this to be fascinating. Right now, the Pew Research Foundation identifies that for every couple, they need to produce about 2.4 children to maintain a population rate. So they have it figured out that for every person, that's what they need to do. 2.4 children to maintain the population numbers. And yet, when you look at the Pew Research information, in 2020, the fertility rate in the United States was 1.8. What they're pointing out to is that right now we are in a decline in population numbers from where we could be. But it gets even more it gets even more interesting to me than that because they go back and they look at the population numbers from 2010 to 2015 and amongst Christian people, the population rate, the reproduction rate, if you will, is 2.7. 
when you compare that same period of time with the Muslims, the Muslims are around 3.1. And in this Pew Research article, they said that they were predicting that by 2050, Muslims will equal Christians numerically in the world. Another article said that they were estimating that by 2035, Muslim mothers will be having more baby, more babies than Christian mothers. And what they're saying is, is they are pointing to this idea that, in just in plain English, Christians are being outbred. And we're being outnumbered. And they're saying, can you just imagine coming to the time where it's not a matter of the liberal policies, it's not a matter of the social policies, you have this Sharia law, and when they have the majority when it comes to the voting booth, they can vote in whatever they want to. They can enact laws in whatever they want to. And so they said, we need to be mindful that God has given us a position, and part of that comes, part of this generational transition comes through us making sure that we multiply and fill the earth. And yet, God looks at Noah and his descendants and says, go forth, multiply, and fill the earth. And he even still today, when we look around, we realize that it will not be very much longer long-term speaking, before we as white Christians are in the minority. Right here in Oklahoma, we could, just a matter of a couple generations, be in the minority. Now, that doesn't mean that's a bad thing. I'm not trying to say that's a detrimental thing. I'm just saying that sometimes when God gives us His plan, His idea, it has a purpose. Well, the problem comes after He said, go forth and multiply. They didn't do it. So then you get down to Genesis chapter 11. Now sometimes people come in and we want to think that Genesis 11 fits chronologically between Genesis 10 and Genesis 12. The problem is is that it doesn't fit when you go back and look at the language. Some people try to identify where it is at. If you start there in Shem, which um, chapter 10 and verse 21, it talks about Shem then it follows the lineage of Shem all the way down through 11 and verse 26 when he talks about Abraham. That's about 390 about 300, yeah, 390 years, somewhere right in there that you can figure. Some people say, well, when did the Tower of Babel happen? Well, some people, some Bible scholars would go back to 10, chapter 10 and verse 25 and pin it to about the time of Peleg. That the Tower of Babel happened about right during that time. The problem is it doesn't tell us when it happened. But most conservative scholars would say that this isn't a chronological picture. That after chapter 10 and verse 32, then you have chapter 11 and verse 1. Rather, when you get this genealogical picture, that somewhere in the the time between Shem having children all the way down to Abram, this happened somewhere in that lineage, but in the Hebraic writing, they pretty much write from scene to scene to scene. They don't write from moment to moment to moment. So it's hard to really pick where this is coming in, but we know what then takes place. And the whole picture of this Tower of Babel, and we're going to look at it in the frame talking about the depravity of man, but it really just kind of comes down to this myth of self sufficiency. This idea that we don't need anybody. That we can do it on our own, by our own, and we don't need the help of anyone around us. So notice how chapter 11 and verse 1 begins. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, which Shinar is, as the Bible scholars would tell us, is probably around the area of Babylonia, or Babylon and Babylonia times. It's that same region, if you will, they would say. And they settled there. 
And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There was this idea that they had that they were self-sufficient. They were one people. They had one language. They were in one place. And yet they still had this depraved heart. In fact, they thought that they were the cause and that they had the power. So they say right there in verse 3, Come, let us make these bricks, burn them thoroughly. And then they said, verse 4, Come, let us build for us ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. There's these individuals, this group of people that... So quickly, now we don't know exactly how many years, but so quickly they had gone from seeing the power of God, the control of God, the omnipotence of God, all of the things, all the attributes of God on full display, and they go from there to this moment thinking that we can be gods ourselves. In the Mormon religion, they teach that you can attain deification. That you can attain to the same level of Jesus Christ. God created Jesus. God created you. So it's a matter of a process. And if you would grow, and if you develop, and if you achieve to this level, you can be on the same level as Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Mormon church, they teach that if you get married in one of the select temples that they have throughout the world, then that marriage lasts into eternity. I was getting some bones crushed by a chiropractor over in Luther and and having a conversation with him, he said, well, I attend the Mormon temple there in Edmond. And I said, really? And then we conversation turned to his wife and he said, we were married in, and he named the particular temple. I said, you were married in the Mormon temple. And he said, yes. And I said, that means that you believe you're going to be married for eternity. And he said, yes. says. <laughs> I mean, that, that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, some people would hate the idea of being married into eternity. Some people would relish the idea of being married into eternity. But the problem is, is that this, this comes in where people start to think they're self-sufficient. People start to think that they can supplant their dependency upon God. They start to think that they can do everything on their own and they don't need God anymore. And so they come into this picture here in Genesis 11 and they have this idea, we're going to build for ourselves. We are going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to do these things for ourselves because we can do and we can take care of ourselves. We do not need a God. Their goal was a tower but if you think about it, their motivation was worship. We were created to worship. And if we do not worship God, we will worship something else. There is no such thing as a person that does not worship something. We were created for worship and therefore we are going to worship something. So there's this myth of self-sufficiency that they thought they thought in their heart, hey we can do this, we can achieve this notoriety, we can achieve this fame. We know that God said to go forth and multiply. We know that God said to disperse. We know that God said that we were to move out and to fill the land. We know that God said that we were to go. But you know what? We are just going to sit here and build for ourselves. And I sometimes think about the church today. God says to the church, through Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, to go. And yet we can historically see where churches have not gone. They have just stayed 
built for themselves. And I'm not going to try to impugn the motivations. I'm not going to try to say that their desires were to uh, supplant uh, the glory of God. I think some of them are great. I have been in some very large facilities, some very large sanctuaries. I'm not trying to say just because it's big. I'm not trying to say just because it's a bunch of people means that they are building for their own safety. But I do think that you can look at examples of people that got together in the name of religion and they built things in the name of God that were really just for the glory of man. And it's a danger that is even still present today. You grow up and you think, I've got to have this house. And then you get to your uh, lighter years in life and you finally get the house and you're in the house for 20, 30 years and then the house is somebody else's. Because you've passed on. You you think that you need this particular possession. You think that you need this particular lifestyle. And by the time you get it, you have spent more time trying to get it and you have less time to actually enjoy it. And all it was was to show everybody, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. So there's a myth there in Genesis chapter 11. This myth of self-sufficiency. This idea that these people... that. These people that I think are no better or no worse or no different than you and I. This idea that we can do things that we want and we do not need God. We do not need to be uh, dependent upon God. We do not need to humble ourselves before God. We can do what we want because we have ourselves to support and we have ourselves to receive the credit. So it says there in verse 6, And the Lord said... I'm sorry, I'm going to back up to verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Verse 7. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and left off the building of the city. And therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So right here is where people look to and say that is where all of the different languages come from that we see in the world today. But what we also see is we see the mercy of God. Now what happened last time? A man rebelled against God. God came in and he kicked man and he kicked the woman out of the garden and he said, here's the consequence. You're going to be toiling. You're going to have pain in childbirth. Here is the consequence, the results of your actions. Then you fast forward and you get there in the, 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 uh, the flood account when men had rebelled against God. God said, fine. Those of you that rebel against me, you're going to drown. I'm going to wipe all the people off the face of the earth. And then you get here and what do we see? We don't see the wrath of God. I think sometimes we just assume that God's this mean big bully and all He wants to do is just tell us what we can't do. And so many times we miss the mercy of God. God comes in. He sees what they were doing. God saw what they were going doing. God knew what they were doing, but God still acted and according to His purpose. And what did He do? Did He come down and He cast them down? Did He kill them? Did He come down and He, he, he afflict them with the plague? Did He come down and He put leprosy on them? Did He come down and say, well, you know what? This is the result. Here is the punishment. Deal with the wrath. He just came down and dispersed them. And I think sometimes we fail to see God's mercy in our lives. My hard-heartedness, my stubborn rebellion, my lack of trust and faith in God, 
those times that I am disobedient, arrogant, unrepentive, and yet God continues to show me mercy. You know, right here in this narrative that we see, God didn't come and He didn't cast them down. He just dispersed them. He just said, you're going to have different languages and these different languages are going to confuse you to the point that you're going to give up. I have been in India. I have been in Ecuador. I have been in Mexico. All three places, English is not the predominant language of where I have been. And we have sat there on the job site and we have tried to build things when there are two different languages going on and it is incredibly infuriating. We were down in Reynosa, Mexico two summers ago and we are trying to lay strings out for um, this concrete pad that we were going to pour and one of the guys that was there, one of the Mexican guys had this dog and this dog kept running back and forth across the job site and when he's running, if you've ever tried to lay out string lines to lay down for concrete forms, the dog didn't realize what the strings are for. So the dog kept running into the strings, kept breaking the strings kept getting them offline and so I'm getting heated (laughs) I'm getting upset because you know what you can go to Taco Bell I'm not interested in you being here tearing up our forms and so I tried to explain get your dog out of here the dog is just tearing up what we're trying to do and the guy looks at me like what's the problem with my dog He's messing up our strings. And there was this communication breakdown because he didn't understand to the point I thought, you know what, I don't care if the concrete's poured or not. I mean, it doesn't matter to me. I've got a bed and I've got a house where I'm going back to. I don't care if you get concrete. I don't care if it's straight. I don't care if it's level. What do I matter? I've experienced that where the confusion when the language and how how much that can break up the continuity. So God comes in and in His mercy, He doesn't strike them down with death. He doesn't strike them down with pestilence. He just simply comes in and says, my desire, my plan, my purpose for you all is to multiply and fill the earth. So I'm going to bring this about even if it's through my mercy and my grace in your life. And so that's what happens. It says, so the Lord dispersed them from there. Then I'm back up in verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Now, if you were to read this, you were to think, okay, so they left off building the city and that's the end of the story. But you know what? So many times we try to pick up back up on the work. We try to pick back up the building. We think we don't have to be desperate for the unction of God. We don't have to be humble in our dependency before God. We can trust in man more than we can trust in God. And we start to think or start to build these small towers in our lives thinking that we can do exactly what they thought they can do. And all we are doing is just demonstrating our depravity. Because we start to think that we are better than we really are. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, it says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So when we look at the, the account of the Tower of Babel, it reminds us just how depraved the heart of man 
is. Just how easy it is for the heart of man to think that they can be their own God. Just how easy it is for you and I to start to think that we do not need God and that we can do this by our own. Just how easy it is for you and I to think that we do not need God in our daily lives. And we often forget that even in our moments that we turn away from God, God is still merciful for us. We forget that sometimes the things that God brings into our life is God's means and God's ways of directing us and guiding us and pointing us in the direction that He wants us to go. Sometimes we don't realize that what God may be doing in our life is actually for our good ultimately down the road. Because all we are thinking about is how can we build our own towers? How can we build our own edifices? How can we get credit? How can we get glory? How can we point to ourselves? So why do I think this matters? Well, why do I think the depravity of man matters in our world today? Because the danger of self-sufficiency is rampant. People today think they don't need God. They don't need a church. They don't need a religion. They don't need faithfulness. They don't need obedience. They don't need submission. They don't need to pursue after God. They start to think that they can take care of themselves. They start to think that they are self-sufficient. But I want you to remember this evening along with me that self-sufficiency, the danger of self-sufficiency is that it believes that it doesn't need a Savior. If you think that you can do it by your own or you think you got it on your own, then you don't need to be forgiven or saved from anything. And that's the danger. That's the danger we're in when we're living with the people. We're living in a time and an age when people think they don't need God. They can do it on their own. They have their own means. They have their own methods. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to have a relationship with God. I don't need to have a daily walk with God. I don't need to humble myself before God. I can do it on my own. And the danger then comes is that we think less of God and we think more of ourselves. And that's contagious. When we start to think less of God because we think more of ourselves... And the next thing we're walking around saying, well, God sure is lucky to have me. Or God, boy, God, you sure am glad that I'm a part of this church. Because if, if I wasn't here in this church, this, this church would just fold. And, and if I wasn't here, then this would happen. And if I wasn't doing this, then this wouldn't take place. Sometimes we can start having a, a pity party for ourselves and saying, well, you know what? No one's helping me in this ministry. Or no one's helping me in this endeavor. Or you know what? If I wasn't doing this, this wouldn't get done. Or you know what? They need to be happy about because I'm here. Because I'm doing this. Sometimes we can have a pity party for ourselves because we're one in the glory and we want the accolades we want the attention and we don't get it we start getting upset, we start getting uh, frustrated, we start getting discouraged and all along God is saying hey I didn't put you here to build your own tower, I put you here to build up the name of Christ to advance the kingdom of God and to, uh, to bring glory and honor to Him and yet I've been there <laughs> I've been there when the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart and I had to Acknowledge that I'd been working on my own tower instead of working on His work that He's called me to do. And we think about the depravity of man, whether you see it on display here in Genesis chapter 11, it's prime on display, the depravity of man, even after the flood, even after Adam and Eve, even after all of these things had taken place, their heart was still evil, their heart was still set on evil, and they were still pursuing after evil thoughts and evil deeds, and they're still pursuing even that today. And so we think, well then Spence, what is the answer for depravity? What is the goal? What, what, what do we do about it? 
So if we realize that man is depraved, then what is the remedy? Jesus. The only remedy is Jesus. The only hope is salvation. The only cure is grace and forgiveness and the redemption that comes when we receive the glorified bodies. The only hope that we have in this world when it comes to our depravity amongst humanity is Jesus. And I realize that can sometimes seem simplistic. But we start to think that man, we are going to answer man's problems with man's ideas. If we could have figured it a way to save ourselves, we would have already have done it. If there was such a means to be able to heal ourselves, we would have already done it. They're trying right now. They're doing the stem cell research and they're doing all of the cancer research and they have all these advances in medicine and they're doing all of these things trying to say we are going to the 3D printing and trying to uh, and trying to uh, artificially build these organs and they have all these things and, I, and I'm not saying they're wrong and I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying there are all these attempts to try to replace God. Because man is content with showing that they can be God themselves. We need to be reminded that when it comes to this world, they don't need more education. They don't need more money. They don't need more food. They don't need more clothes. They don't need more housing. They don't need more social services. What this world needs is Jesus. So we can do the social services. We can provide for the material needs. We can take care of these things. We had a phone call just on the church just this last week. Someone called. I'm just moved into the community. I need housewares. I need a refrigerator. I need a stove. I need a washer. I need a dryer. I need a couch. I need a bed. I need a TV. And I'm thinking, well, you didn't move. I'm not mushy. I thought you didn't move, young lady. I mean, that's not what you call moving. If I walk from one place to another place and I walk in and I sit down and that's it, I just moved my physical self. But that's not the definition of moving. I mean, when I think of moving, I think of loading all your possessions up and taking from one place to another. And I'm thinking, you need all of this stuff. Well, that's great, but where do you stand with God? Where do you stand with Jesus? If we're not careful, we can get lulled in this idea that it's all about tower building. That's all about you and I creating these things that bring us glory, bring us fame, bring us recognition. And we forget that our goal on this earth is to not just go forth and multiply, but our goal on the earth is to advance the fame and the glory of God. Man is depraved. We should not be surprised at the depravity of man. We should not be surprised at the sinfulness of man. But let them see in us as a church, us recognizing there's not a single one of us in this room that is good. No, not one. Apart from the grace of God, every single one of us would be destined to an eternal hell. Depravity is real. Let that drive us to dependency upon Christ.